Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Phoenix. Um, I had a wonderful time uh, today at the new shul uh, with a group of women, and um, I was just so happy to be here in, in Shmuley's place because uh, we had really a very, very rich uh, experience uh, being Chavruta study partners uh, for an extended period of time, which kind of ended, and I, I was sad about it at the time, and it reminded how sad uh, I am about it. So it's delightful to be to be here. This rock star thing is not so easy, but I'll try to try to keep it. Um, so I just want to want to tell you a tiny bit of my of how it is that I come to be talking about um, this topic. And um, then I'd like for us to study some texts together. And then uh, I have a I hope what'll be a very compelling way to engage you in the conversation. Um, Seeing you is like seeing the face of God, healing interpersonal conflict. Nobody would have seen that topic, seen that title, and mistaken it for an academic topic. This is not an abstract academic lecture. Right? This, is, this is about our lives. Um, I often say that all of us are experts on conflict. We're all experts on conflict. We're human beings. We live in relationship with other human beings in our families, in our friendship circles, in our communities, uh, in our nation. Um, So we all have experience of conflict, and um, Judaism has a great deal of wisdom to offer us, and even a body of practice to offer us in how to bring uh, the best of Jewish wisdom um, to one of these most difficult areas of, of our lives. Um, to tell a long story very briefly, which I'm not always that good at, but um, if, you, if you read the book, uh, is the longer version. I've been a rabbi for 31 years. About 12 years ago, um, I received a very powerful calling um, to be involved in the work of peace and reconciliation. The calling came, I'll spare you the details at this moment, but if you really want me to tell the story, you can ask me later. Uh, it came, the calling came in the context of watching a group of Israeli and Palestinian teenagers um, going through a program that uh, brought them into relationship with one another. Um, but then I came back to my home in Minnesota as a conservative rabbi, and having received this sense, experienced this sense that God, as it were, as if God speaks like a human being, but God, as it were, called to me and summoned me and said, do something for the cause of peace. Find a way to serve the cause of peace. So obviously, as a rabbi in suburban St. Paul, Minnesota, I wasn't going to be the person who was going to be able to bring peace 
um, to Israelis and Palestinians. God help us, hopefully that person will soon um, be found. Um, but in, in response to that calling, um, I sort of looked around to see how, what's the, what's the sort of work that I can do as the person that I am with whatever gifts I have in the place that I am. Um, and that led me into many years of engagement with interfaith dialogue, which did feel very, very meaningfully uh, to me, very powerfully to be um, piecework, not, which is to say that it wasn't always easy, um, but that it was piecework, and um, have been involved in a number of ways uh, in helping Jews in North America to talk with one another about issues that it's important to talk about, that it's difficult to talk about. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I've worked with, uh, with intra-Jewish uh, dialogue, which at the time that I was beginning to try to figure out how can I do work that, that is related in some way to, uh, to peace and dialogue and reconciliation, um, the issue that Jews regularly named as the thing that was most important for us to talk about was uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I was involved in many such conversations. So here we are having this conversation in uh, early spring 2017, and I have to say that now I have lots and lots of synagogues and rabbis and lay leaders uh, calling, calling me to say, can you help us talk about domestic politics? Because we are in a synagogue in which we have people who voted different ways, who understand American politics differently, um, people who have very, very strong feelings on both sides people who have a close family member who believe something radically different than they do and the relationships are strained and it feels like we have no choice, feels like we have no choice but to say we will not talk about that subject. But just like in a marriage or in any intimate friendship or relationship, if there are things that you can't talk about, that you're not allowed to talk about, there's a sort of walking on eggshells quality, which is not good for relationship. It holds relationship back. So there's a sense that, well, what, what, what options do we have other than letting loose and screaming at each other, which is obviously destructive of a relationship, or gagging ourselves, which is also destructive of relationship when the, when the issue, you don't have to always talk about every area of disagreement, but when there's something really important happening in your life and you can't talk about it with the people who are close, that's an obstruction to relationships. So, so now we live in interesting times. Um, so we do. So we still have Israeli-Palestinian relations, uh, lots to talk about there. Um, we have American politics about which uh, the American Jewish community, I think, is divided as never before in my memory. I'm 62 years old. So um, there's no lack of examples, shall we say, um, to work with. Um, but over the course of my years trying to explore this calling, I, I, I simply became fascinated with all things related to peace and conflict, became fascinated with what Jewish tradition had to say. How does, how, how, how does Jewish tradition define peace? The answer, of course, is it defines peace in many, many different ways, in some contradictory ways. Um, what, is, what, what does Judaism say about the genesis of conflict and, at the, and about the potential for transformation of conflict? How does the unique sacred wisdom of Judaism and the unique practices that, Jew, that Jewish tradition offers um, intersect with what we know in our lived experience and what is known in um, the contemporary fields of conflict resolution and conflict transformation. How, how do these different fields of, of endeavor um, come to be? And, and I became more and more just fascinated with what, what makes people fight 
and what helps them to stop. Um, and so, let's see, I don't have a visual here. I left it, left it outside, but I now have the great privilege of uh, working for Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. We have alumni in the crowd, Pardes alumni, usually, oh, usually there's an alum or a few. Uh, wonderful, wonderful, um, renowned, uh, pluralistic yeshiva, essentially, in Jerusalem. Um, it's a wonderful institution. You want to know more? I'm happy to talk about it later. Pardes um, has within it, it's essentially a pluralistic yeshiva, uh, works with all kinds, of, all kinds of Jews, not just Orthodox, but around the study of Jewish sacred texts. It has within it a center for Judaism and conflict resolution. Whoa, that got my attention. As soon as a friend said, what, you haven't connected with those people yet? You have to, you have to connect. Uh, so shortly thereafter, I got a job there. Um, which allowed me to stay uh, in my home in North America. So there is this Center for Judaism and Conflict Resolution, um, which does all kinds of very interesting work within uh, Pardes itself um, and around Israel, works with interfaith uh, organizations in Israel, intergroup work within Israel, uh, works with all the mediation centers in Israel. Fascinating work. If you want to know more, here's a, a refrain. If you want to know more, um, ask me later. And they have some programs that bring the work of the center uh, to North America. Um, at the point at which I started um, to be in relationship with the director of the, to be in conversation with the director of the center, his name is Daniel Roth. Um, he told me about their newish, pro, newish program called Pardes Rodef Shalom Schools. Rodef Shalom meaning pursuer of peace, and Rodef Shalom is a very, 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 very old term and concept and system of thinking and practice in rabbinic Judaism, in very, very ancient um, layer of rabbinic Judaism. So they established this program called Pardes Rodef Shalom Schools, in which basically they teach um, Jewish texts about conflict resolution and conflict resolution practice in day schools at the middle school level. So how brilliant is that, I thought. Take kids who are middle schoolers and they're struggling with relationships every hour, if not every day. There's just a bullying and identity and all kinds of complexities there. And they bring, they, they bring the Jewish texts and they integrate the Jewish study of the Jewish texts with um, suggestions of practice. I was fascinated. And of course, Rodev Shalom School's amazing. And I said, what about Rodef Shalom Shuls? So we, here we are, it's a couple of years later, and I now direct the Pardes Rodef Shalom Communities Program, which means that I work, we work with rabbis and synagogues all around North America, predominantly around the generative question, what would it mean to be a Rodef Shalom rabbi? A rabbi who defines him or herself, among other ways, as a pursuer of peace. And I mean, I mean that not in a political sense. Don't get hung up on the fact that my personal experience be began with this Israeli-Palestinian-related thing, but in terms of how people do relationship with one another within the walls of the synagogue, in the board of the synagogue, and in their own lives, how does the synagogue inspire people to be really Jewish, be really ethically Jewish, robustly Jewish, in the way they deal with the difficult conversations and the difficult relationships in their lives. What would it be, what would it mean to be a Rodev Shalom rabbi, a person who leads Jews in that direction? And what would it mean for rabbis, for lay people, for congregants to, to say, you know what? Our congregation is a Rodev Shalom community. To say that among the small handful of Jewish 
uh, central values um, that we treasure in our life, in our shared life together, what would it mean to really place Ridifat Shalom, the pursuit of peace, interpersonally, relationally, and communally, um, at the center? What would a synagogue be like such that when you walk in the door, and maybe I don't know anything about your shul, um, really, that when you walk in the door, you know how sometimes you, you, can, um, you can almost smell the things about the culture of a congregation. It's almost palpable in the air when you walk in someplace. Sometimes you can, you can sniff, you can sense hospitality. You can sense vitality or inno- innovation. You can sense um, commitment to justice sometimes because you look around and you see what's, what's posted around. So what would it be if from the moment you walk in the door, give or take, you feel we are peacemakers, where there's nothing more important to us than in trying to bring people together when it's safe and possible to do relationship with one another in their own lives and in our shared life together in the best possible way, in the most truly Jewish way. I'll notice that when I say Jewish, I don't mean that sociologically. I mean that in the traditional sense. How do Jews talk? Right? How do Jews argue? If I asked you, it's an obnoxious question. How do Jews talk? We talk fast. We argue with one another. We talk with our hands. We interrupt one another and so on. That's a sociological answer to the question, how do Jews talk? But the Jewish tradition has a, has a lot of definitions about how Jews are supposed to speak and listen to one another. So what would it really be if the shul were the place deeply, deeply committed to our speaking to one another, our doing relationship with one another in, in a way that was profoundly informed and inspired um, by Jewish ethics of speech and Jewish ethics of relationship. So um, that's, that's my current work. So with that said, I turn to the specific top, topic that um, Shmuley and I decided to name for tonight. So we, so we chose for the title of the talk, um, among the most riveting um, verses in the whole Torah, um, seeing you, and seeing you is like seeing the face of God. Um, you know the story, Jacob had fled from his childhood home because after he had played a number of um, kind of dastardly pranks on his brother Esau, um, Esau was very, very angry at him and was probably an impulsive guy uh, to begin with. Um, it seemed like threatened to kill him. It was a good idea for Jacob to leave. Jacob left for 20 years. At a certain point, gets he has a dream. He has an internal intuition, and he also has a dream. becomes clear that it's time for him to go home. Um, he comes home knowing full well, anticipating fully that he'll be meeting the still murderous wrath of his brother Esau. Um, you, you know all the stories. And they come together, and after you know he's wrestled with the angel, Jacob has wrestled with the angel slash person slash um, inner essence of himself, however you understand that story. He has arranged his family so that the least beloved people are closest to the uh, anticipated confrontation and the most beloved people are farthest away and protected. And it's time, there's, there's no, more, no more delay as possible. It's time he goes to approach uh, Esau. He's already heard that Esau has 400 men with him. He's terrified. And Esau greets him with a hug. And Jacob says, um, among other things, 
כי על כן ראיתי פניך כראות פני אלוהים ותרצני. Please do me the favor of taking my gift. Esau, they had this little, they were haggling like in the shuk, you know, take my gift. No, I don't need my gift. No, really, please. Part of that haggling, I pray you please do me this favor, accept for me this gift for to see your face, meaning to see your face and you're not trying to kill me which is what I've anticipated for all these 20 years and for these terrifying few days, weeks, however long it took to get here, to see your face communicating the voice of peace, as it were, that's my addition to the verse, is like seeing the face of God, you have received me favorably. You have received me, period. What's going on here? Um, How do you understand, I'd like to hear, I'm going to ask you a question, that's a radical question to ask a Jewish group, I'd like a very, very short answer, like a short sentence. What's going on when Esau and Jacob come together? Forgiveness. Beautiful. Who else? They are recognizing their soul bond, soul like neshama, a longing for connection. Reconciliation. Fear is breeding hope. Greedy. Wow. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Um, anybody have a different take on the story? This has been a cluster of beautifully expressed um, descriptions of the sense that this is a moment of peace. This is a moment of peacemaking, of, of reconciliation. This is, there's not, there's, a, there's an implied question. I pray you if you would do me this favor. There's a question mark there. There is doubt here. This is not a resounding, absolutely 100% clear reconciliation. Not at the end, either. Remember that what happens after this story is Esau says, oh, come, come with me. Come with me. We'll go journey together. You'll come and you know, meet my mishpacha and so on. And Jacob makes up an excuse. Jacob says, no, you, know, you go ahead. I have all these animals. I have these children. You know, they walk very slowly. In other words, yeah, we had this moment of embrace, but trust you? Not really. Um, so Jacob makes up an excuse in order not to have to go ahead. This is, a, according to the explanation that this is a reconciliation, and I agree with you, I, it, very beautiful that this is what you came up with. There's an entirely different way of reading the story. And many of the classical commentators read the story with utter suspicion and um, derision of Esau, of Esau and um, inability to, to see the story, I want to say to see the, the plain uh, level of meaning on the story because they, they can't believe that Esau would be capable of this kind of beautiful act of embrace. Yes, please. Uh, great. So, so this is, you're, you're sort of giving more emotional depth and breadth to the question of process of Jacob, of the reconciliation not being complete. When there's been a long-standing estrangement in a family, it doesn't usually get resolved in a, in a moment. It's a matter of time. And this is, there was no moment out here in the desert for an you know, extended course of family therapy and you know, all the stuff that would have happened to work out the issues. But I'm talking about something radically different. Uh, about half, I haven't done, I made that up. I, I, I haven't done a count. But a good ha- at least half of the classical Jewish commentators read the story entirely differently, and that is to say, you know what? Esau came with 400 men. 
You know what that means? He came with an army. And it says that Jacob was terrified. It says actually twice he was terrified and apprehensive. It says that in the text. Commentators love it. What do you mean? He was terrified and apprehensive. Um, immensely relieved that Esau didn't kill him. And, and what about this thing about they embraced? Esau embraced him. If you look that up in the Torah, in the spot in the Torah, there are dots on top of that word. Vayishakehu. Um, so there are dots above that word. Who knows? Departing from moving into the editor. Who knows why there are dots in the story? But that, that stream of interpretation says those dots are to tell you he kissed him? Are you serious? So the Midrash says things like, my favorite version of it is, um, if, you, if you change the vowels just a little bit on Vayishakehu, he kissed him, you get, and he bit him. Esau actually bit his neck, and, but because God was on Jacob's side, he, God turned Jacob's neck into marble and all of Esau's teeth fell out because he was suddenly trying to bite a, a tower of marble. So let, let the record note that there's a lot of laughter in the room. That, to people like us, that version of the story sounds completely ridiculous. And so my colleague, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Roth, who's an Orthodox rabbi but also a PhD in conflict resolution, so... Um, stands in a different place than I do in terms of religious institutions, but is an expert, literally an expert in reading stories from different um, perspectives, which which is what uh, conflict resolution is all about, Um, says, you know that laughter that we just heard here and that we would hear in communities just like us all all over the place, all over the world in, in progressive Jewish communities? If you told the version of... Those, those beautiful descriptions you made, re- re- reconciliation, restoration of soul connection. Forgive me that I don't remember all the, the other beautiful words that you described, this moment of peace between, between Jacob and Esau. In a different audience, they would crack up with derision because that would seem so utterly implausible. Here's, I can't resist passing this on. So my colleague Daniel is a very, very pluralistic, uh, open-minded guy, sends his kids to Orthodox schools. Um, he has four children, and each one of them, when they reached nursery school at the same school, when the Parsha came up, they, you know, along with whatever those, you know, pieces of paper, the homework assignments and so on, they were given to the children. Along with, in that packet, came a series of cartoons which depict the Midrash that I just told you. Esau comes to Jacob, ready to embrace him, but he opens his mouth, and it's like, you know, fangs, and he leans into Jacob's neck, which turns into stone, and and in the next uh, frame, all of Esau's teeth fall out onto the the ground. As absurd as that seems to us, that is self-evidently plausible in certain Jewish communities. So I ask you, well, one question. We could go in this direction. Uh, so, so what's the truth of the story? If one set of Jewish communities says it's obvious that the plain meaning of the text is that this is a, this is a moment of reconciliation, albeit an, an incomplete one. And for another part of the Jewish community, both currently and going back through time, as evidenced by the, uh, by the, by the 
sacred texts and the commentaries. Um, the, this, this text, like so many others, and like most of the stories of our lives, is open to interpretation. And so conflict happens when there is a story about which there are multiple interpretations and there is no capacity to recognize the authenticity or plausibility or even compelling nature of that interpretation to another person. There's there's an inability to see, I can understand why you, coming from where you come from in your life, would read this story and imagine it in this way. Uh, What we have now is we have two parts of the Jewish community laughing at one another in derision. How could you possibly think that this is a moment of reconciliation? Asav, are you kidding? How could you possibly think, what is this business with the teeth? And no matter what Asav does, he does a good thing, and you find him suspicious. What's the matter with you? And mutual non-comprehension. I actually want to move on. This was just the introduction, but I did promise. <laughs> I, how about if you, you ask a question, and I'll decide whether to answer it now or later. How about that? Well, I'll give, a, I'll give a short answer to a profound question, which is that just because God called him and said, you have to go back, doesn't mean that he wasn't terrified. He was still terrified. He went back, but he was terrified. Sure, very short answer. And by the way, the commentators say, you remember I said it says he was terrified and he was apprehensive. And one of the interpretations is why, do you have, why, why are there two words when one would have sufficed? This isn't just any book where there's bad editing or there were you know, two synonyms strung together. This is the Torah, so if God used two different verbs just to mean the same thing, that's meaningful. He was terrified that he would be hurt, that he would be killed, and he was terrified that he would kill Esau. Anyway, please. So we're, our, color, our thinking has to be colored. We say... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't say Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Right, because that's our story. We know, quotation marks, that Jacob is the great guy here. And why wouldn't his brother embrace him, even though there were all these ugly things that happened 20 years ago? Oh, I thought you were going to go. I was with you until why wouldn't his brother embrace him? The Torah is the story, the early part of Genesis is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the heroes of the story are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Esau. Esau's not the hero. So Esau did some bad things, so we're maybe inclined to take a leap now. We're capable of demonizing Esau as Esau came to be representative of Edom, of Rome, of Christianity, of the West, of the United United States. I was at at a uh, rather from shul in a West Bank settlement um, on the on the Parsha in which this story happens, and I heard a, had a, heard a sermon that was so difficult for me to hear that it, it took all of my self-control to just stay in the room. And to everyone else in the room, apparently, it, it, it was the only possible understanding. These are people who live, this, this Jewish community lives with hostility from their surrounding neighbors. And so what makes sense in looking at this story is that um, you can't trust Asa. Anyway, there actually is a lot more that I wanted to do tonight. Totally lost track of time. We have to... Uh, okay, okay. I want to ask you to think about what real but imperfect reconciliation looks like in your own lives. And I think I'd like to ask you 
to think simultaneously on two different levels. On the interpersonal level, maybe it's not really vertical, it's, it's concentric circles. Think about people close to you, people with whom you're in face-to-face relationship, and think about larger circles of which you're a part, community, or nation, or Jewish people. And I want to ask you um, to think about how this radical description, Jacob comes to Esau with every expectation, bracketing his faith in God, that God, God sent him. Um, this is the man who threatened to kill me. And I have no, I have no direct reason to expect that anything, um, anything else has, has changed. In that situation, you don't see, you don't look at the person's face and see the image of God. You look at the person's face and you see threat. You see enemy. You may see less than human. You may see rage, limitation. You tend, maybe I should say I tend, in that kind of situation of of really great fear, upset, history of hurt, conflict, estrangement. That's not a moment when I am generally capable of looking in the person's eyes and saying to myself, this person too is created in the image of God, just as I am, right? In, in those situations, it's really hard to see the, the image of God in the other. So I ask you, on both of, in both of those circles, is there a person in your life, face-to-face relationship, about whom that's true because of a history of hurt, estrangement, tension, bitterness, whatever, conflict, whatever it is, that if the truth be told, although you might, you know, of course, theoretically, everybody's created in the image of God, but it's sure hard to see it in that person, see who comes to mind, and maybe there's some blessed people in the room for whom no one comes to mind, that would be great, and you really should be giving a lecture, (laughs) writing writing the book, and um, then also ask yourself in the larger, in the larger sphere, um, someone in the Jewish community, someone in the American political context, what someone on the world stage. There's someone that if you see him or her on television, it's really, really hard to see that person is created of the same stuff that I am. We're both created the image of God. It's hard. Not only is is that not the first thing that arises, but it's hard to even force yourself um, to to go there. So I want to look at some texts that some classical texts from the tradition, um, under the rubric uh, from enemy to friend. You know, I really like this enemy to friend thing. This is the first book. My husband's published many books. Hold on one sec. My husband's published many books. This was my first one just a couple of years ago. I don't really know, you know, how this works. But I knew at a certain point that I needed to call my book from enemy to friend. I wrote it not having, not yet having a publisher. I knew that I needed to, to um, call the book from enemy to friend. Uh, because of a text that we'll turn, turn to in just a second, um, I thought I had this bargain with the publisher whom I hadn't yet met. Say, okay, you can have the subtitle, but please, please let me call it from enemy to friend. And, and fortunately, they they oblige. You'll see for for a moment that's, that this is a quote from a classical text. So 
I want to just say for the rest of the time, I'm going to be giving you a selected sampling of Jewish texts. And if you ask me, are there Jewish texts that take a very different take on the subject than a different perspective on the subject than the one that's in this six-page handout, it's a very short handout, actually, considering the breadth of the, uh, of the tradition, the answer is absolutely. There are, there, are texts, there are texts from our classical tradition that do say, in some sense, fear the other, um, be very careful about the other, be suspicious of the other, um, the, the other is out to hurt me. There, there certainly are such texts. How, how could it be otherwise, considering the historical circumstances under which Jews created their sacred texts? Right. So there is suspicion of the other for sure, and there is material about you know no matter what no matter what happens, protect yourself. Don't get so don't get too rhapsodic about your you know pursuing peace thing. So there are a lot of different threads within the tradition, and I'm going to be emphasizing one of them. But that, it's not my intention to say that it's the only one. I want to explore one of them. Um, brief comment or question before I zoom on. Yeah, because when you said image of God, I start to think that murder is black for God, but it becomes not image of God, because God has many different things. Great. Um, we talked about that at some length in my session this afternoon. I'm not sure how to... Well, my short response to that is, uh, yeah, if you ask what does God look like in the Torah, God looks like and acts like a lot of different things. But although, again, rabbinic literature is a very, very vast and varied uh, body of literature, of literature um, created over a thousand years or so and so, so on, um, there's a very strong thread within Jewish tradition um, that elevates the loving, compassionate, patient, generous, forgiving image of God. Not that it wipes the other out. It does certainly does not. Um, but, it, but it works hard, like the, the description of God that the rabbis place in the machzor so that we'll say it over and over and over and over again throughout the high holidays is all about God being gracious and compassionate, forgiving, and so on. Um, is much more, we could write a whole book about your, in response to your, uh, to your question. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. So on your, on your handout, here's that favorite text that, um, chose the title of my book for me. Um, you, some of you probably know the text in uh, Pirkei Avod, Ezeu Chacham, Halomei Mikol Adam, who is a wise person, counterintuitively, who's a wise person? It's a Jewish text. The answer is somebody who knows a lot of, knows, has a lot of, lot of learning, a lot of book learning, right? Wrong. Who is the answer to the question? The answers to the questions are all counterintuitive. Who is wise? One who learns from everyone. Um, Ezehu Gibol, you would think, you know, someone who runs into a burning building to rescue a child, such a person is plainly heroic. But the answer in this sense, in this, uh, in this case, is in, in Pirkei Avod, it says, who, who is the hero? Ze shakovesh et Yisro, one who conquers one's own impulse to evil, right? Heroism is an inside job. 
Yes, yes, of course, there's things that we can do out, you know, outside of the world that are heroic, but the greatest heroism, at least that the rabbi who wrote that in a, in a particular bedzoma, in a particular mood, said, you know what, I want to emphasize the counterintuitive part, the part that's, that's interior work, that has nothing to do with muscles and, and brawn. It's all about the work on our own souls. So this book, Avot to Rabbi Natan, which is sort of a commentary um, on Pirkei Avot from several, several centuries later, um, quotes Pirkei Avot, but amplifies it, who is the greatest of heroes? Who's the greatest hero of all? One who conquers one's own impulse to evil. Jewish text, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's another view. Um, some say, one who makes an enemy into a friend. What's the most heroic thing of all? Affecting reconciliation. Somehow moving into a relationship where there has been hurt and bitterness and estrangement and tension, maybe over a long period of time, and having a hand in affecting some level of, of imperfect reconciliation. Reconciliation on the human level is always imperfect, right? Making an enemy, um, making an enemy into a friend. Um, so, for those making an enemy into a friend, yeah, um, sounds heroic. For how many people does that sound beautiful? For how many people does it sound ridiculous? Oh, it's a sweethearted. It's a, it's a sweethearted and both, and both. How is this possible? How is this possible? Um, because in moments in which we might have um, a skeptical reaction to that text, we might be saying, how could you possibly say this? Don't you understand that this person did this to me, truly did this to me? This person is dangerous. This person is, this person is perhaps evil, is perhaps um, psychologically disturbed. I actually don't, I actually wouldn't feel safe being in a room with this person. What do you mean enemy into a friend? There are lots of reasons to be skeptical and rightly skeptical um, about that, um, about that teaching. Um, and yet I think what's most important to me about this notion of, of making an enemy into a friend and what the rabbis do with it is to say, just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. If it's dangerous to be in the room with that person, then you don't go into the room with that person, right? But the fact that being in the room with that person is unsettling, is frightening, brings up anger, brings up memories that are painful, brings up self-doubt about, did I contribute to this? How, how am I supposed, is there any way that I can make any change about this? It brings up all kinds of very painful feelings. That's not a reason not to engage in the heroic uh, aspiration to be a peacemaker. And that's expressed beautifully in this. Um, Rabbi sa says, when it says, quoting Tehillim, uh, Psalm 34, you know, shalom Seek peace and pursue it. Technically not a mitzvah. Technically speaking, a mitzvah is in the Torah. There actually are some, some commentators who say, despite the fact that this is in the Psalms, it's actually, it's actually a mitzvah. So I, I loosely, I, it's, for me, it's a mitzvah with a, with a small mem, not a capital mem. So when the psalmist says, commands us, seek peace and pursue it, when it says seek peace, 
Chaim of Elohim says, it means that you should want there to be peace between you, even if, in your opinion, the other person sinned against you. It's true that the other person hurt you badly. It's true that the other person did terrible things. It's true that you have good reason to suspect that the person may not be capable of reconciliation. And it's true that it hurts. All of that is true. It's not in your mind. Nevertheless, bakesh shalom the still you should pursue it not just the whole body of commentary just on those on those three words why again why does the psalmist why is the author of the psalms use two verbs seek and pursue or one would have sufficed and, and what that means to me is that there's a there's a really commanding particularly commanding quality to this commandment this is not the kind of commandment that when the opportunity comes to you you should respond in a particular way. When it's almost sunset on Friday, you light candles. If you find a lost object, you return it to its owner. When your parent needs something to the best of your ability, you honor them by offering it, right? When, when the situation happens, you respond in a particular way. But of only two mitzvot in the Torah, do we have the command not only to respond, but to pursue, that is, peace and Justice, tzedek, tzedek, tir dof, justice, justice, shall you pursue. Nevertheless, although it's hard, yes, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a conflict to make peace over if it weren't painful. Nevertheless, you should pursue it. You should be the rodef shalom. Right? How often in these situations? I'll reconcile when he approaches me and apologizes. Of course, there's a whole literature about um, the, the half sentence, the sentence fragment that I just said. Um, but this, this, this text says, regardless of the other person's true sins against you and limitations, you should be the Rodef Shalom because you're commanded to. You should be the pursuer of peace rather than waiting for the other to reconcile with you first. I can see I'm not, the discussion's going to be very rich and I'm not going to get to all these sources, but oh well. Yes, please. Oh no, I uh, promised you first. Um, so, you know, so many times there are family issues. So what happens if you, if someone chooses to pursue peace with someone, but then that angers someone else? Well, if you make amends with that person, then I'm going to be mad at you. You know, I mean, people sometimes take sides, and and sometimes you're in the middle. You might want to forgive someone, but someone else says you better not. So then what? Oh, yeah. So the question is, what happens when in family conflicts, when you might want to to try to make peace with one member of the family and in so doing, um, maybe you create or enmity develops uh, in another member of the family who's also at war with this member with this member of the family. Um, If you notice my jaw dropping, it's because um, someone told me the same story earlier today. And she's probably not your twin and <laughs> probably not even your relative. Um, but because this happens in human families, and maybe it's surprising that I haven't heard this, this question five times today, um, this is what happens in entrenched um, family conflict. So um, I want to resist the temptation of trying to say something clever um, that can tie up this question with an absolutely clear um, answer. I, I can only say, I, I could just imagine... 
what lies beneath the question that you just asked. And we all have these stories, right? Most of us have such stories. When I hear your question, this may sound absurd, but I'm just going to say it's complicated. There's, there's nothing simple about this. It's very simple and clear and commanding, resounding. Seek peace and pursue it. Simple but not easy, right? Absolutely. It's such a... There's nothing we pray for in Jewish liturgy more often or more passionately than peace. You think of anything else we pray for as often? There isn't anything that we pray for. We, we constantly go through a traditional service many, many times over the course of one service. We, we have prayers for peace. In the Kaddish, the prayer for peace appears twice in two different languages, in Aramaic and in Hebrew, right? And at the end of every period, several times at, at the end of the end of the Amidah, then the Kaddish again, and so on. Um, it's simple. It's a central value we're commanded to pursue, and there's nothing easy about it. Um, I think I'm going to stop there and invite you if you want to talk more. Let's, you know, let's talk more afterwards. So in case anybody thought that I was saying it was easy, thank you for the question. And yes, please. So reconciliation is pursued by one side, but not, if there isn't a reciprocation, it's not really a reconciliation or if it is, it's Yes, again, these are huge, profound questions to which I'm giving uh, ridiculously and inadequate short answers. The short answer is, and this is going to sound like uh, 21st century pop psychology, but it's actually rooted in the text, which will, if, if we get to, um, if we get to, to move on, you'll see. Um, is that um, our obligation to seek and pursue peace is not dependent on the other person's response, right? I can't control the uh, psycho- psychological versions. I can't control um, the, the other person's response. And I am not exempt from the commandment because of the other person's response, unless it's, it's, really, um, it's really physically dangerous. It's really a physically threatening um, situation. So I agree with you that... A full, perfect reconciliation is impossible unless two people are engaged in it. Um, But reconciliation is really a a continuum. Um, Peacemaking is a continuum. Relation, the restoration of relationship is a continuum. And and an extending a hand of outreach, even with good reason to believe that the other person may not respond well, is first of all very frightening, very heroic, and a response to a Jewish imperative. And an, an example of that is right here at the bottom of page five, page one, I'm sorry. Um, before I get interested in peace and conflict, you know how you've been reading Torah for years and years and uh, studying Torah for years and years, and I swear I never saw this verse before. Um, but and now it's very, very important to me, the, 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 the case of the lost ox or donkey in Parashat Mishpatim. Um, Exodus 23, when you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering, okay, you're, you're walking, walking along the street and you see this donkey and for whatever reason, it has pink ears or I don't, I don't even you, you know it's clear that, that this is your, this animal belongs to your um, a- enemy person, your, your estranged person, you must take it back to him or her. People often read this text and say, oh, oh, that sentence belongs in a minute. 
when you see your enemy's donkey sagging under its burden and would refrain from raising it, so you're walking along the path and there's a donkey that's laden with all sorts of wares and it's about to collapse and is beginning to collapse and the stuff is starting to fall off its back and so on. Um, and you would refrain from raising it. That's my favorite part of how to write the verse. The Hebrew is actually very complicated, but... Um, the verse hints, it's as if, if you assume that God is the author of the Torah, in whatever that means, it's as if God, God is whispering, I know that you're going to be tempted to say, let someone else help. You're going to be tempted not to help. There's part of you, there's a place in your heart that's going to not want to do what's obviously the menschlich thing to do. You must nevertheless raise it with him or her. And what I started to say before prematurely is that people often read this text and say, oh, oh it's because it's, um, it's uh, tsar balei chayim, right? It's because the animal is suffering. So you, of course, you need to step forward and help the animal. Most of the commentators don't take it that way. Most of the commentators say this is about the relationship um, between the two people. So there hasn't, there's been no reconciliation I just, uh, you don't, we don't have oxen donkeys. When I lived in Minnesota, I taught, taught, this, taught this text. I said, um, uh, you're driving along in a blizzard and you see your enemy's car and you recognize the car because you know their license plate, whatever, they've driven into a snowbank and they, and they need help. See, you're in the parking lot uh, of the supermarket and you see someone who you've been brogues with, you know, there's been really, really serious tension between your family and theirs, um, carrying, uh, carrying a you know, lot more groceries than he or she uh, can really hold, and the, and the bags are starting to drop and tear and whatever, you know, in the parking lot. What is the menschla thing to do is obvious. In that sense, it's surprising. What would you say? Get a cart. Find a way to help them. Or say to her, what's the matter with you? Why don't you have a cart? Oh, great, great. That's the little nasty voice inside. What's the matter with you? Why did you try to? Exactly. You're going to want to, you're going to want to find some way to make her wrong. Yes, beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, for, for saying that, there, there is that, you know, somebody else will come along and help us, you know. You know what the mental thing to do is. So it's a little peculiar that the Torah has to say, if you find a lost animal, you have to return it. We know from elsewhere that if you find a lost object, you have to return it. So why does the Torah have to give us a verse specifically about the case of the lost ox or donkey? Because it isn't about the ox or donkey. It's about, it's about you and your relationship. So, so like I say, I never noticed this before until um, my colleague, Rabbi Ed Feld, uh, those of you who are conservative Jews, um, know Ed Feld as the um, brilliant, inspired um, editor of the uh, Leif Shalem Machzor and now Sidur. I heard him teach this text, and he said, um, so imagine what's, what this looks like in the donkey situation um, back, you know, a couple of thousand years. Do think about, you know, what this would look like in your own life. Um, but in the ox or donkey situation, so you decide... Okay, Torah says I'm supposed to help, so I get off my donkey, whatever I'm riding, I roll up my sleeves, I start taking up, you know, start getting ready, I start, there's this huge animal, and he and I start working, you know, to pick up the animal, to pick up all the stuff, we're doing a bunch of, we're doing Within a moment, we're doing physical labor together, we're schwitzing, it's uncomfortable, it's yucky, and then you look across and like, 
you know, he's doing it and I'm doing it. This is an extraordinary relational moment hidden in the apparently arcane case of the wandering duck, wandering ox or donkey. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to skip way, skip way ahead. If you turn to page three, uh, most of the way down page three. So, um, hold on. So the commentators and lots have lots and lots to say on the subject of, so, so what, what's the essence of this mitzvah? First of all, um, I don't know your name over here talked about sort of one-sided uh, efforts at reconciliation. This is an example of, a uni- of unilateral outreach to an enemy. It's commanded in the Torah. We might debate to what, contem- to what contemporary situations does this apply or, or not. There's actually uh, rabbinic literature uh, thinking of what the, what the contemporary panel, um, contemporary analog might be. Uh, your enemy person, whatever that means uh, to you, um, gets sick. Uh, do you visit that person in the hospital or not? Complicated, way complicated question. I'm just looking for contemporary examples. There's a death in the family of that person. Do you go to Shiva or not? Do you write? Do you write a note or not? Do you, do you reach out? Right? How, how do you do unilateral outreach? Even if you have reason to believe that maybe the person is going to tear up the note, um, but but when when is the Torah's command to us to to do the right thing? That is to say, to pursue peace, um, nonetheless. So why the commentators have lots to say about this at the bottom of page three? Um, why should we help our enemy? Uh, would somebody read that text under answer number one out loud in English for us? So they, the, the, the guy sees the wandering donkey and the enemy standing there and says, okay, I need to help. You know what? I know my Torah. I studied my Parshat Mishpatim. I need to help. It gets down on the ground. They start you know, doing all this stuff together. And it doesn't say who suggested it. It, it says that the other guy, the enemy figure, says, whoa, look at him, like putting like very substantial time and effort into helping me. I thought he was my enemy. I thought he was a jerk. Maybe he's really not so terrible. And it doesn't say who said, let's go out for a drink. But the two went out for a drink, and they're back in relationship somehow. How did that happen? Because somebody studied this mitzvah in the, in the Torah. Why should we help our enemy? Even unilaterally, because it might bring about reconciliation in, in, in how, uh, however partial a way. So answer number the one, why should we reach out? Even unilaterally, it might help the relationship. <coughs> answer number two, let someone read in English, where it says answer number two on page four. You said what? Okay, so this is Rambam, Maimonides. Shmuley's a scholar of Rambam, so we will see if you'll check up on me. Um, I, this text uh, reminds me of a pet peeve. Anybody have a pet peeve in Jewish life? One of my pet peeves is the uh, common wisdom that everybody knows that Judaism is about behavior and not about feelings. It's about action. It's not about we feel. 
about what we feel. No, maybe not in Phoenix. Okay. No. Um, it, it's true that Jewish law is primarily a behavioral um, tradition. And people say, it's a classic question about the Vahafta. What do you mean you shall love the Lord your God? How can it be a mitzvah? How can you command someone um, to love? So here is Maimonides, the ultimate rationalist, although that's in quotes because he really isn't just, he's a lot more than a rationalist, um, really talking about the inner dynamics of what happens inside around grudge-bearing, grudge grudge-keeping. He says, when someone's hurt you, blot any offenses against you out of your mind and do not bear a grudge because as long as one nurses the grievance keeps in mind, one may come to vengeance. And there's another verse in... Um, uh, Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 19, right before the verse that everybody, everybody knows, love your neighbor as yourself, right before that, it says, um, do not hate your brother, sibling in your heart. Do not uh, take vengeance against the other. So he says, if you have to blot out that set of feelings, you might ask, how is that possible? When someone has hurt you, how is that possible to blot out the feelings? He, said, he says, you must blot out those feelings and not bear a grudge because as long as that grudge is festering inside you, you might then be moved to an act of vengeance and that's forbidden. The Torah therefore emphatically warns us not to bear a grudge so that even the impression of the wrong shall be completely obliterated. Is there a um, neuro, neurologist or neuropsych person? I love you know the sort of neuronal pathways. It's like there is a... There is a there. There are grooves. There are memories. There are related synapses in the brain related to the um, to the trauma that happened in the in the relationship. But the more you tell that story, the more you reinforce the story of the of the grudge, the closer, the more tempted you will be to acts of vengeance, and you need to prevent that. This is the right principle. It alone makes civilized life and social interaction possible. Why engage in interact in even unilateral acts of reconciliation, it makes civilized. First of all, it may keep you from sinning as a, as a grudge bearer. It, it, it makes without this, social interaction is impossible. Civilization is impossible because we're never going to live in relationship with other people and not hurt each other. So if there isn't a mechanism for saying we need to let go of stuff, we won't be able to live together. And, f- and finally, and it's just a quick sampling, of course, answer number three, I- I'm not going to explain the whole um, textual uh, fine points in the text here, but just for the, um, for, for the, on the level of content, um, an Aramaic, Aramaic translation of our verse hints that the verse, which actually says, you know, don't listen to that nasty little voice inside that says, why didn't she use a, a card? Or let someone else help. That nasty little voice, don't listen to that voice. Rather, let go of the hate in your heart. Why engage in even unilateral acts of reconciliation? Because it's good for your own soul because it's necessary for your own spiritual development. And then I have a bunch, these are some of my favorite things, I have a bunch of texts about, um, about, the, about the inner work. So I can either, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to do a very brief writing exercise. Three, four minutes. 
for the purposes of this exercise, I'll ask you to think of someone with whom you're in face-to-face relationship, with whom you have a difficult relationship, or, or an outright an outright break. And I'll ask you, I'm hesitating because I, I pl- plan to do it. I want to honor time. I'm going to do it in a shorter version than I um, had imagined. So I'll, I'll ask you, the, my first question will be, how do you think of feel about that person? That is to say, and, and I'll ask you since there's only three or five minutes, three or four minutes, you might want to just write single words or something like that, just scribbles. And um, you're not going to have to share this. I might ask for a couple of reactions, but this is this is not for publication. This is not for sharing with the whole group. Just for you. Write some adjective. Quickly write some adjectives or. Um, images that describe sensations that describe your sense of antipathy to this person. That's step one. And step two. So the um, the conflict resolution scholar from whom I learned this, his name is Jay Rothman, uh, teaches at Barilan, um, says when you're doing step one, imagine a finger. And an attacking, blaming figure pointing toward the other. In step two, follow your third, fourth, and fifth fingers, which are pointing back to your own heart, and ask yourself, what is it, what is it that's touched in me, that this anger, that this trauma touches in me, um, that makes it bother me so much? Okay, so there's going to be another short set of instructions. So I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you three minutes just to sort of scribble about this, think about this person, articulate quickly. What is it about them? How do you feel? Describe your antipathy, your antagonism toward them, and then step two. Huh? Where's this coming from in me? What What is this touch in me? What is this about for me? I'll give you three minutes. Okay, a couple more seconds. So now comes the really important part of the exercise. And here's where I invite you to take uh, a leap of empathic imagination. We human beings can never know what's going on in the mind and heart of another person. But I ask you as best you can, imperfectly, to jump inside the mind and heart and life experience of your problem person, the person you've been thinking about. And imagine if that person were asked to describe the relationship with you, that person were given the same assignment that I just gave you, what would they say? What would they say about how they regard you, how to describe their hurt, antagonism, enmity, whatever it is, resentment toward you? How, how would they see that? What do you look like to them? Step one. 
the, the, the wagging figure, finger. Step two, the fingers that point back toward the heart. How might they answer, to the, que- answer the question, what is it about me? What is, what is so hard for me about that person, that person being you? Okay? It's a little hard to articulate. Is that, is that clear? Anybody? Okay. Um, maybe three more minutes. I'll see if you need three minutes. Okay. So because the questions were so marvelous, um, we didn't get to the point, some people will be disappointed and some people will be relieved, we didn't get the point of actually acting these, acting out these conversations. We were going to actually do it live and talk, talk them out. So you imagine how interesting and challenging that might be. Um, so I want to ask you, first of all, Uh, for how many people was it hard to answer the questions for the other person? <laughs> Just a couple. That's inter- that's really interesting. Small number. So, um, who, uh, uh, without revealing the details at all of the situation, um, I would ask you who would like to say something about what it was like to ask. To, to interrogate your own feelings and perspectives in that way and to think about the situation from the other perspective. What was that like for you? Because although I started with this grand image that appears to be really a total reconciliation, except when we really look at it, look at the text of Genesis very closely, it's not, it's not so um, complete. Um, it seems beyond... Um, beyond our wildest dreams, or beyond beyond the realm of possibility. Um, but in the real world, um, after we've tried and tried and tried and gotten help and done a lot of introspective work and then tried some more, um, at a certain point, there's a need to take a break because it doesn't feel like our efforts are, are helping. Then it really comes back, and, and the, the, the mitzvah about you should reach out even if the person is still your enemy, um, is to suggest that fun- sometimes the only peace is found within. And actually what's key for me there is the question, what sort of person do I want to be? And even the, the, the Rambam, who's usually, you know, very often speaks in this rationalist kind of voice, who says you need to, you need to not be carrying grudges around in your heart. Again, I sound like a you know, sound like a, um, new age therapist when I say that. And there, there it is in Maimonides that it's really bad for you. And he means that I think not on the, on the level of health, but on the level of soul health, on the level of your soul's journey through this life toward being as much as true to being the image of God as you were created to be. Um, you can't wait for the other person to do that. And the question is, what work can I do to flush that enemy, that enmity, out of, out of my own life? And for, and for me, one, one of the ways to do that is to literally ask myself a question. Who is the person that I want to be in my life and in this relationship? And, and how can I get there even, even if I don't know whether the other person will respond? Um, I, I'm tempted to say that 
this session has been brought to a beautiful, graceful end because that could have been the benediction um, at the end of the whole session. I, I, I should let me let me just say for the um, for the recording, you said a lot of beautiful things, but but one of them is I loved your musing about um, the relationship between the notion of making an enemy to friend enemy into a friend as a perhaps miraculous expectation. Only when miracles happen would it really be like that. I won't embarrass you, though, all of you in the room, by asking you, have you ever seen a relational miracle happen? Um, yep. So one, one person, several people have raised their, I have. So sometimes, at least there's some quality of mystery and how sometimes a relationship that seemed broke to be broken beyond repair somehow found some level of reconciliation. So I believe sometimes in that kind of miracle, and I loved what you said, that it's interest the Jacob and Esau example is really, really interesting in that there was this 20-year separation. Maybe Clearly something was possible after 20 years of not seeing or hearing each other, no phone, no internet, no, no contact, nothing. Um, something was different then at the end of that, different at the end of that period. Um, so there is miracle, but short of miracle or a, a um, breakthrough of divine mystery and power, um, there is, how about the aspiration to make an enemy into a non-enemy? Um, and that can be really a very big deal. And, and that's about the work that we do on ourselves. That's the work in our own mind and soul. A couple of other comments, and then we're going to close. Please. Yeah, I, 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 when you said that, it made me think of the situation between Israel and Jordan and Egypt, where they were enemies, and now they may not be friends, but they're non-enemies. That's right. Um, relative to our Jacob and Esau um, example, I learned recently that when, remember when Sadat came to Jerusalem? Uh, you know, not that we, we don't have a great peace. We don't have a warm peace with Egypt, but we have, well, who knows what Egypt is exactly these days, but there's something like that scholars call the cold peace. When Sadat landed, when Sadat's plane landed at uh, Ben-Gurion, no, it's probably called Lod at that time, whatever, at the Israeli airport, um, the Israeli military was ready to move in because there were some members of Israeli intelligence who said, imagine this situation. Sadat is coming. He's going to land in Israel. Every member of the Israeli government is going to be there. If we wanted to do damage, if we wanted to wipe out the whole Israeli government leadership and intelligentsia, we could do it all with just one bomb right there, right there at the airport. There was that... Of course Esau is coming to, to destroy me, right, with, with good reason. And yet there was the miracle. Maybe it's too big to call it a miracle because, again, a warm peace didn't result. Um, but sometimes extraordinary things happen. Yeah. I wanna, you wanted to say something? Yes. I wanted to say that I think this was a great exercise in empathy, yes. which is a trait that um, more people, I think, need to have. And it, it, it also um, uh, brought together the beginnings of a conversation with that person. Yes. Through this empathy that can take it to the next level. Yes. So in closing, so um, not to do justice to your sharing, but to say that this was an exercise in empathy, um, which now my words and not yours uh, seems to me what the world needs more of. 
It's what the Jewish community needs more of. It's what all human beings need more of. Jewish community needs more of. The United States, God help us now in this really, really strikingly polarized um, kind of situation. So many, so many places around the world. So when I think about, I don't know, the tradition says King David wrote the book of Psalms. Maybe whoever wrote the book of, book of Psalms, when he said, when he wrote those beautiful words, seek peace and pursue it, there's one thing I know for sure. And that is that he wasn't writing those words to secretaries of state or international diplomats because nation states didn't exist and those kinds of positions didn't exist. He wasn't even just talking about monarch, talking to monarchs. When he articulated the command, seek peace and pursue it, he meant all of us. He meant all of us. And that that is a command for all of our lives. And I would suggest a command for all of our lives, most especially um, at a period when relationships on so many levels seem to be strained um, and even deteriorating in really, really concerning and frightening ways. So I I ask you, and this is the final exhortation in my book, and, and I think always the way I end a talk like this, is that I want to ask you to think about what you mean when you pray for peace, when you recite the prayers for peace in the Amidah, when you sing Oseh Shalom, when you say any, any one of when you sing any one of our beautiful beloved prayers and prayers for peace placed in, in song in all, all kinds of ways, when you find your heart moved, when you hear a group of teenagers singing singing one of those songs or the latest Israeli iteration of a, of a secular prayer for peace, what does, that, what does that prayer mean in your life? What does that, how does, how does the command to be a seeker and pursuer of peace um, uh, find uh, expression in your life? And I ask you not to be too timid in responding to that question. I ask you to take that question personally and boldly because what I know for sure is that if more people around the world took seriously in whatever language is right for them the imperative to be seekers and pursuers of peace, we would live in a better world. So know that many people around the world, probably everyone in this room already, but we can all all do more. Um, If we can work harder, if we can reach out more uh, energetically, if we can reach inward more heroically, um, we can make a difference and make the (laughs) families, communities, nation, world in which we live somewhat more peaceful places. So thank you so much for listening. It's a pleasure. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion 
of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.